0: section twenty nine of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter twenty nine the literature of the reign first survey part three the paths of the two poets who first sprang into fame in the present reign are strangely remote from each other mr tennyson and mr browning are as unlike in style and choice of subject and indeed in the whole spirit of their poetry as wordsworth and byron mr tennyson deals with incident and picturesque form and graceful legend and with so much of doubt and thought and yearning melancholy as would belong to a refined and cultured intellect under no greater stress or strain than the ordinary chances of life among educated englishmen might be expected to impose he has revived with great success The old arthurian legends and made them a part of the living literature of england but the knights and ladies whom he paints are refined graceful noble without roughness without wild or at all events complex and distracting passions it may perhaps be said that tennyson has taken for his province all the beauty all the nobleness all the feeling that lie near to or on the surface of life and nature his object might seem to be that which lessing declared the true object of all art to delight but it is to delight in a somewhat narrower sense than was the meaning of lessing beauty melancholy and repose are the elements of tennyson's poetry there is no storm no conflict no complication mr browning on the other hand delights in perplexed problems of character and life in studying the effects of strange contrasting forces of passion coming into play under peculiar and distracting conditions all that lies beneath the surface all that is out of the common track of emotion all that is possible that is poetically conceivable but that the outer air and the daily walks of life never see this is what specially attracts mr browning In Tennyson, the knight of King Arthur's mythical court has the emotions of a polished English gentleman of our day and nothing more. Mr. Browning would prefer in treating of a polished English gentleman of our day to exhibit him under some conditions which should draw out in him all the strange elementary passions and complications of emotion that lie far down in deeps below the surface of the best-ordered civilization the tendency of the one poet is naturally to fall now and then into the sweetly insipid, of the other to wander away into the tangled regions of the grotesque. It is perhaps only natural that under such conditions the one poet should be profoundly concerned for beauty of form and the latter almost absolutely indifferent to it. No poet has more finished beauty of style and exquisite charm of melody than Tennyson. None certainly can be more often wanting in grace of form and delight of soft sound than Mr. Browning. There are many passages and even many poems of Browning which show that the poet could be melodious if he would, but he seems sometimes as if he took a positive delight in perplexing the reader's ear with harsh, untuneful sounds. Mr. Browning commonly allows the study of the purely psychological to absorb too much of his moods and of his genius it has a fascination for him which he is seemingly unable to resist. He makes of his poems too often mere searchings into strange deeps of human character and human error. He seldom abandons himself altogether to the inspiration of the poet. He hardly ever deserves the definition of the minstrel given in Goethe's ballad, who sings but as the songbird sings. Moreover, Mr. Browning has an almost morbid taste for the grotesque. He is not infrequently a sort of poetic collo. It has to be added that Mr. Browning is seldom easy to understand, and that there are times when he is only to be understood at the expense of as much thought and study as one might give to a controverted passage in an ancient author. This is a defect of art, and a very serious defect. The more devoted of Mr. Browning's admirers will tell us no doubt that the poet is not bound to supply us with brains as well as poetry, and that if we cannot understand what he says, it is the fault simply of our stupidity. But an ordinary man who finds that he can understand Shakespeare and Milton, Dryden and Wordsworth, Byron and Keats, without any trouble, may surely be excused if he does not set down his difficulty about some of Browning's poems, wholly to the account of his own dullness. It may well be doubted whether there is any idea so subtle that if the poet can actually realize it in his own mind clearly for himself the english language will not be found capable of expressing it with sufficient clearness the language has been made to do this for the most refined reasonings of philosophical schools for transcendentalists and utilitarians for psychologists and metaphysicians no intelligent person feels any difficulty in understanding what mill or herbert spencer or huxley means and it can hardly be said that the ideas Mr. Browning desires to convey to his readers are more difficult of exposition than some of those which the authors we name have contrived to set out with a white light of clearness all round them. The plain truth is that Mr. Browning is a great poet in spite of some of the worst defects that ever stood between a poet and popularity. He is a great poet by virtue of his commanding genius his fearless imagination, his penetrating pathos, he strikes an iron harp-string in certain of his moods. His poetry is like that of the terrible lyre in the weird old Scottish ballad, the lyre that was made of the murdered maiden's breastbone and which told its fearful tale in tones that would melt a heart of stone in strength and depth of passion and pathos in wild humour, in emotion of every kind mr browning is much superior to mr tennyson the poet laureate is the completer man mr tennyson is beyond doubt the most complete of the poets of queen victoria's time no one else has the same combination of melody beauty of description culture and intellectual power he has sweetness and strength in exquisite combination if a just balance of poetic powers were to be the crown of a poet then undoubtedly mr tennyson must be proclaimed the greatest English poet of our time. The reader's estimate of Browning and Tennyson will probably be decided by his predilection for the higher effort or the more perfect art. Browning's is surely the higher aim in poetic art, but of the art which he essays, Tennyson is by far the completer master tennyson has undoubtedly thrown away much of his sweetness and his exquisite grace of form on mere triflings and pretty conceits and perhaps as a retribution those poems of his which are most familiar to the popular mouth are just those which least do justice to his genuine strength and intellect the cheap sentiment of lady clara vere de vere the yet cheaper pathos of the may queen are in the minds of thousands the choicest representation of the genius of the poet who wrote in memoriam and the mort d'arthur mr browning on the other hand has chosen to court the approval of his time on terms of such disadvantage as an orator might who insisted in addressing an assemblage in some tongue which they but imperfectly understood it is the fault of mr browning himself if he has for his only audience and admirers men and women of culture and misses altogether that broad public audience to which most poets have chosen to sing and which all true poets one would think must desire to reach with their song it is on the other hand assuredly mr tennyson's fault if he has by his too frequent condescension to the drawing-room and even the young lady-school made men and women of culture forget for the moment his best things and credit him with no higher gift than that of singing virginibus puerisque one quality ought to be mentioned as common to these two poets who have so little else in common they are both absolutely faithful to nature and truth in their pictures of the earth and its scenes and seasons almost all the great poets of the past age even including wordsworth himself were now and then content to generalize nature to take some things for granted to use their memory or the eyes of others rather than their own eyes when they had to describe changes on leaf or sky or water it is the characteristic of tennyson and browning that they deal with nature in a spirit of the most faithful loyalty not the branch of a tree nor the cry of a bird nor the shifting colours on sea or sky will be found described on their pages otherwise than as the eye sees for itself at the season of which the poet tells in reading tennyson's description of woodland and forest scenes one might almost fancy that he can catch the exact peculiarities of sound in the rustling and moaning of each separate tree in some of mr browning's pictures of italian scenery every detail is so perfect that many a one journeying along an italian road and watching the little mouse-coloured cattle as they drink at the stream may for a moment almost feel uncertain whether he is looking on a page of living reality or recalling to memory a page from the author of the ring in the book. The poets seem to have returned to the fresh simplicity of a far distant age of poetry, when a man described exactly what he saw and was put to describing it because he saw it. In most of the intermediate times a poet describes because some other poet has described before— and has said that in nature that there are such and such beautiful things which every true poet must see and is bound to acknowledge accordingly in his verse these two are the greatest of our poets in the earlier part of the reign indeed in the reign early or late so far but there are other poets also of whom we must take account mrs browning has often been described as the greatest poetess of whom we know anything since sappho This description, however, seems to carry with it a much higher degree of praise than it really bears. It has to be remembered that there is no great poetess of whom we know anything from the time of Sappho to that of Mrs. Browning. In England we have hardly any woman but Mrs. Browning alone who really deserves to rank with poets. She takes a place altogether different from that of any Mrs. Hemans or such singer of sweet, mild, and innocent note, Mrs. Browning would rank higher among poets without any allowance being claimed for her sex. But estimated in this way, which assuredly she would have chosen for herself, she can hardly be admitted to stand with the foremost even of our modern day. She is one of the most sympathetic of poets. She speaks to the hearts of numbers of readers who think Tennyson all too sweet, smooth, and trivial, and Robert Browning harsh and rugged she speaks especially to the emotional in woman in all moods when men or women are distracted by the bewildering conditions of life when they feel themselves alternately dazzled by its possibilities and baffled by its limitations the poems of elizabeth browning ought to find sympathetic ears but the poems are not the highest which might appeal to our own moods and echo our own plaints and there was not much of creative genius in mrs browning her poems are often but a prolonged sob a burst of almost hysterical remonstrance or entreaty it must be owned however that the egotism of emotion has seldom found such exquisite form of outpouring as in her so-called sonnets from the portuguese and that what the phraseology of a school would call the emotion of altruism has rarely been given forth in tones of such piercing pathos as in the cry of the children Mr. Matthew Arnold's reputation was made before this earlier period had closed. He is a maker of such exquisite and thoughtful verse that it is hard sometimes to question his title to be considered a genuine poet. On the other hand, it is likely that the very grace and culture and thoughtfulness of his style inspire in many the first doubt of his claim to the name of poet. Where the art is evident and elaborate, we are all too apt to assume that it is all art and not genius. Mr. Arnold is a sort of miniature Goethe. We do not know that his most ardent admirers could demand a higher praise for him, while it is probable that the description will suggest exactly the intellectual peculiarities which lead so many to deny him a place with the really inspired singers of his day. Of the three men whom we have named, we should be inclined to say that Mr. Arnold made the very most of his powers and Mr. Browning the very least. Mr. Arnold is a critic as well as a poet. There are many who relish him more in the critic than in the poet. In literary criticism, his judgment is refined and his aims are always high if his range is not very wide. In politics and theology, he is somewhat apt to be at once fastidious and fantastic. The Song of the Shirt would give Thomas Hood a technical right, if he had none other, to be classed as a poet of the reign of Queen Victoria. The Song of the Shirt was published in Punch when the reign was well on, and after it appeared The Bridge of Sighs. And no two of Hood's poems have done more to make him famous. He is a genuine, though not a great poet, in whom humour was most properly to be defined as Thackeray had defined it, the blending of love. wit the song of the shirt and the bridge of sighs made themselves a kind of monumental place in english sympathies the plea of the midsummer fairies was written several years before it alone would have made for its author a reputation the ballad of farinez is almost perfect in its way the name of sir henry taylor must be included with the poets of this reign although his best work was done before the reign began in his work Clear, strong intelligence prevails more than the emotional and the sensuous. He makes himself a poet by virtue of intellect and artistic judgment, for there really do seem some examples of a poet being made and not born. We can hardly bring Proctor among the Victorian poets. Macaulay's ringing verses are rather the splendid and successful tour de force of a clever man than the genuine lyrics of a poet. Arthur Clough was a man of rare promise, whose lamp was extinguished all too soon. Philip James Bailey startled the world by his Festus, and for a time made people believe that a great new poet was coming, but the impression did not last, and Bailey proved to be little more than the comet of a season. A spasmodic school, which sprang up after the success of Festus, and which was led by a brilliant young Scotchman, Alexander Smith, passed away in a spasm as it came and is now almost forgotten orion an epic poem by richard h horn made a very distinct mark upon the time horn proved himself to be a sort of landor manke or perhaps a connecting link between the style of landor and that of browning the earlier part of the reign was rich in singers but the names and careers of most of them would serve rather to show that the poetic spirit was abroad in that it sought expression in all manner of forms than that there were many poets to dispute the place with tennyson and browning it is not necessary here to record a list of mere names the air was filled with the voices of minor singers it was pleasant to listen to their piping and the general effect may well be commended but it is not necessary that the names of all the performers in an orchestra should be recorded for the supposed gratification of a posterity which assuredly would never stop to read the list thirty-six years have passed away since mr ruskin leaped into the literary arena with a spring as bold and startling as that of Keene on the kemble-haunted stage the little volume so modest in its appearance and self-sufficient in its tone which the author defiantly flung down like a gage of battle before the world was entitled Modern Painters, Their Superiority in the Art of Landscape Painting to All the Ancient Masters by a Graduate of Oxford. It was a challenge to established beliefs and prejudices, and the challenge was delivered in the tone of one who felt confident that he could make good his words against any and all opponents. If there was one thing that more than another seemed to have been fixed and rooted in the English mind, it was that Claude, and one or two others of the old masters possessed the secret of landscape painting. When therefore a bold young dogmatist involved in one common denunciation, Claude, Gaspar Poussin, Salvator Rosa, Rauschdal, Paul Potter, Canaletto, and the various Van Somethings and Cook somethings, more especially and malignantly, those who have libeled the sea it was no wonder that affronted authority raised its indignant voice and thundered at him affronted authority however gained little by its thunder the young oxford graduate possessed along with genius and profound conviction an imperturbable and magnificent self-conceit against which the surges of angry criticism dashed themselves in vain mr ruskin sprang into literary life simply as a vindicator of the fame and genius of turner but as he went on with his task he found or at least he convinced himself that the vindication of the great landscape painter was essentially a vindication of all true art still further proceeding with his self-imposed task he persuaded himself that the cause of true art was identical with the cause of truth and that truth from ruskin's point of view enclosed in the same rules and principles all the morals All the science, industry, and daily business of life. Therefore, from an art critic, he became a moralist, a political economist, a philosopher, a statesman, a preacher anything, everything that human intelligence can impel a man to be. All that he has written since his first appeal to the public has been inspired by this conviction that an appreciation of the truth in art reveals to him who has it the truth in everything this belief has been the source of mr ruskin's greatest successes and of his most complete and ludicrous failures it has made him the admiration of the world one week and the object of its placid pity or broad laughter the next a being who could be joan of arc to-day and voltaire's pucelle to-morrow would hardly exhibit a stranger's psychical paradox than the eccentric genius of mr ruskin sometimes illustrates but in order to do him justice and not to regard him as a mere erratic utterer of eloquent contradictions poured out on the impulse of each moment's new freak of fancy we must always bear in mind the fundamental faith of the man extravagant as this or that doctrine may be outrageous as today's contradiction of yesterday's assertion may sound yet the whole career is consistent with its essential beliefs and principles it may be fairly questioned whether mr ruskin has any great qualities but his eloquence and his true honest love of nature as a man to stand up before a society of which one part was fashionably languid and the other part only too busy and greedy and preach to it of nature's immortal beauty and of the true way to do her reverence ruskin has and had a position of genuine dignity this ought to be enough for the work and for the praise of any man But the restlessness of Ruskin's temperament, combined with the extraordinary self-sufficiency which contributed so much to his success where he was master of a subject, sent him perpetually intruding into fields where he was unfit to labour, and enterprises which he had no capacity to conduct. Seldom has a man contradicted himself so often, so recklessly, and so complacently as Mr. Ruskin it is venturesome to call him a great critic even in art for he seldom expresses any opinion one day without flatly contradicting it the next he is a great writer as rousseau was fresh eloquent audacious writing out of the fulness of the present mood and heedless how far the impulse of to-day may contravene that of yesterday but as rousseau was always faithful to his idea of truth so ruskin is always faithful to nature When all his errors and paradoxes and contradictions shall have been utterly forgotten, this will remain to his praise. No man since Wordsworth's brightest days did have so much to teach his countrymen and those who speak his language how to appreciate and honor that silent nature which never did betray the heart that loved her. In fiction, as well as in poetry, there are two great names to be compared or contrasted, when we turn to the literature of the earlier part of the reign. In the very year of Queen Victoria's accession appeared the Pickwick Papers, the work of the author who the year before had published the sketches by Boz. The public soon recognized the fact that a new and wonderfully original force had come into literature. The success of Charles Dickens is absolutely unequaled in the history of English fiction. At the season of his highest popularity, Sir Walter Scott was not so popular an author. But that happened to Dickens, which did not happen to Scott. When Dickens was at his zenith, and when it might have been thought that any manner of rivalry with him was impossible, a literary man who was no longer young, who had been working with but moderate success for many years in light literature, suddenly took to writing novels, and almost in a moment stepped up to a level with the author of pickwick during the remainder of their careers the two men stood as nearly as possible on the same level dickens always remained by far the more popular of the two but on the other hand it may be safely said that the opinion of the literary world in general was inclined to favour thackeray from the time of the publication of vanity fair the two were always put side by side for comparison or contrast They have been sometimes likened to Fielding and Smollett, but no comparison could be more misleading or less happy. Smollett stands on a level distinctly and considerably below that of Fielding, but Dickens cannot be said to stand thus below Thackeray. If the comparison were to hold at all, Thackeray must be compared to Fielding, for Fielding is not in the least like Dickens but then it must be allowed that Smollett wants many of the higher qualities of the author of David Copperfield. It is natural that men should compare Dickens and Thackeray, but the two will be found to be curiously unlike when once a certain superficial resemblance ceases to impress the mind. Their ways of treating a subject were not only dissimilar, but were absolutely in contrast. They started to begin with under the influence of a totally different philosophy of life, if that is to be called a philosophy which was probably only the result of peculiarity of temperament in each case. Dickens set out on the literary theory that in life everything is better than it looks. Thackeray with the impression that it is worse. In the one case there was somewhat too much of a mechanical interpretation of everything for the best in the best possible world. In the other, the savor of cynicism was at times a little annoying. As each writer went on, the peculiarity became more and more a mannerism. But the writings of Dickens were far more deeply influenced by his peculiarities of feeling or philosophy than those of Thackeray. A large share of the admiration which is popularly given to Dickens is undoubtedly a tribute to what people consider his cheerful view of life. In that, too, he is especially English. In this country the artistic theory of france and other continental nations borrowed from the aesthetic principles of greece which accords the palm to the artistic treatment rather than to the subject or the purpose or the way of looking at things has found hardly any broad and general acceptation the popularity of dickens was therefore in great measure due to the fact that he set forth life in cheerful lights and colours He had, of course, gifts of far higher artistic value. He could describe anything that he saw with a fidelity which Balzac could not have surpassed, and like Balzac he had a way of inspiring inanimate objects with a mystery and motive of their own which gave them often a weird and fascinating individuality. But it must be owned that if Dickens' peculiar philosophy were effaced from his works, the fame of the author would remain a very different thing from what it is at the present moment on the other hand it would be possible to cut out of thackeray all his little cynical melancholy sentences and reduce his novels to bare descriptions of life and character without affecting in any sensible degree his influence on the reader or his position in literature thackeray had a marvellously keen appreciation of human motive and character within certain limits if dickens could draw an old quaint house or an odd family interior as faithfully and yet as picturesquely as balzac so on the other hand not balzac himself could analyse and illustrate the weaknesses and foibles of certain types of character with greater subtlety of judgment and force of exposition than thackeray Dickens had little or no knowledge of human character, and evidently cared very little about the study. His stories are fairy tales made credible by the masterly realism with which he described all the surroundings and accessories, the costumes and the ways of his men and women. While we are reading of a man whose odd peculiarities strike us with a sense of reality, as if we had observed them for ourselves many a time, while we see him surrounded by streets and houses which seem to us rather more real and a hundred times more interesting than those through which we pass every day we are not likely to observe very quickly or to take much heed of the fact when we do observe it that the man acts on various important occasions of his life as only people in fairy stories ever do act thackeray on the other hand cared little for descriptions of externals he left his readers to construct for themselves the greater part of the surroundings of his personages from his description of the characters of the personages themselves. He made us acquainted with the man or woman in his chapters as if we had known him or her all our life, and knowing Pendennis or Becky Sharp we had no difficulty in constructing the surroundings of either for ourselves. Thus it will be seen that these two eminent authors had not only different ideas about life but absolutely contrasting principles of art one worked from the externals inward the other realized the unseen and left the externals to grow of themselves three great peculiarities however they shared each lived and wrote of and for london dickens created for art the london of the middle and poorer classes Thackeray did the same for the London of the upper class, and for those who strive to imitate their ways. Neither ever even attempted to describe a man kept constantly above or beyond the atmosphere of mere egotism by some sustaining greatness or even intensity of purpose. In Dickens, as in Thackeray, the emotions described are those of conventional life merely. This is not to be said in disparagement of either artist. It is rather a tribute to an artist's knowledge of his own capacity and sphere of work that he only attempts to draw what he thoroughly understands. But it is proper to remark of Dickens and of Thackeray, as of Balzac, that the life they described was, after all, but the life of a coterie or a quarter, and that there existed side by side with their field of work a whole world of emotion, aspiration, struggle, defeat, and triumph, of which their brightest pages do not give a single suggestion this is the more curious to observe because of the third peculiarity which dickens and thackeray had in common a love for the purely ideal and romantic in fiction there are many critics who hold that dickens and barnaby rudge and the tale of two cities thackeray and esmond exhibited powers which vindicated for their possessors a very rare infusion of that higher poetic spirit which might have made of both something greater than the painters of the manners of a day and a class but to paint the manners of a day and a class as dickens and thackeray have done is to deserve fame and the gratitude of posterity the age of victoria may claim in this respect an equality at least with that of the reign which produced fielding and smollett for if there are some who would demand for fielding a higher place on the whole than can be given either to dickens or to thackeray There are not many, on the other hand, who would not say that either Dickens or Thackeray is distinctly superior to Smollett. The age must claim a high place in art, which could, in one department alone, produce two such competitors. Their effect upon their time was something marvellous. People talked Dickens or thought Thackeray. End of section twenty nine.